1: This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
0: Yep, that was the sound of a flush, because we're talking toilets with science writer Chelsea Wall in the Netherlands. I'm Charmaine Chan, and on the Postbooks podcast this week, we'll be discussing her book, pipe dreams about the global quest to transform the toilet. It's a subject with a yuck factor, but with sewerage pipes in the news because of the pandemic, it's deadly serious. For those with short memories, Chelsea reminds us what happened at Amoy Gardens in Hong Kong, where in 2003, hundreds of people were infected with SARS, 42 of whom died.
1: There was a index case, someone who came with SARS. He had diarrhea, And he was visiting a family member in this complex and he used the toilet. The toilet was connected to a pipe that ran up and down the block. And that pipe was connected to all the drains. The specific problem was that one of the drains was a drain in the floor of the bathroom. And the trap in that drain in a lot of people's bathrooms had dried out when it dries out there's no seal in it. So gases can come back up the drain into your house. So people might be familiar with this who who aren't familiar with this case or this problem. Sometimes if you leave your house on a vacation for a long time and you come back, it smells like sewage um, if you go away for several weeks. And that's because the traps have dried up and you can fix it. You just run water through the drains. This isn't that your toilet, your toilet has water in it mostly, unless it's evaporated. That's another problem. So people in this block, and I think in Hong Kong in general, and a lot of parts of Asia, but not in the US, have a drain in the floor of their bathroom. That's meant for if you're mopping the floor of the bathroom, the water goes down that drain. But people weren't cleaning their bathrooms in that way anymore. They weren't putting enough water down that drain anymore. And so those drains in many people's houses had dried out. And so um, unfortunately, aerosols from infected people could come back up the pipes, back out the drains and into people's homes. And over 300 people in that complex got sick. This question of the bathroom drain is something that is specific to certain parts of the world. It is not something that I have in my bathroom here in the Netherlands or that I ever had in my bathroom as a child in in the US, I'm from the US. I know
0: it's a big subject, but can you tell us about our toilets and what is wrong with our gold standard?
1: Our toilets as we know them and the systems that they're connected to were developed more than 100 years ago, mostly during the Victorian period. Uh, And that's a flush toilet connected to a sewer system connected to a centralized wastewater treatment plant. Of course, lots of people don't have toilets like those, but that's really what's considered to be the gold standard in sanitation still. There have been advances in the meantime, but they all build on that backbone of that gold standard system. And that system has served many of us very well. Our lives are much healthier and we live longer because of them. And our cities don't smell bad. (laughs) On the other hand, the people who developed those systems didn't know the challenges that we now face today. Climate change is a big one, but there are other issues, toxic pollutants that end up in the sewers and mix everything together. And the wastewater treatment plants aren't designed at their core to handle those. Plastics that end up and other kinds of trash that end up in the system Rapidly growing cities, population growth, right? Booming. And our concerns about inequality. I could go on, but the issues about inequality are also really important. The fact that these systems don't reach so many people in the world, billions of people in the world, um, is also a sign of their weakness and what's wrong with them. It's estimated that more than half of the world's population basically doesn't have access to this gold standard system. Maybe they have a toilet, some of them, or, and even are connected to a sewerage system, but maybe the wastewater treatment plant at the end isn't working. So they don't have what's known as safely managed sanitation. A lot of cities, especially, I mean, we're talking about low and middle income contexts now, they want these sewers, wastewater treatment plants because it is the gold standard. But when they've been built, they've very often failed because they require expertise. They require a lot of money for maintenance and operations, a lot of energy required, a lot of chemicals need to be brought in. And so cities can achieve, at least for parts of their population, they can achieve this gold standard for a little while, but they can't maintain it. It's a massive waste of money for the cities and for the funders who pay for these plants. And it's it's basically a classic example of an inappropriate technology. But the problem is that we don't have any other gold standard technologies that people really want. And people shouldn't have to accept less, in my opinion, just because they have less money. I think in sanitation, everyone should have a gold standard. Perhaps the answer is that we actually just need more gold standard technologies. Chelsea Wall also talks about water wasted in our
0: systems and why so much energy is required for them to work.
1: I mean, I think when people think about what's wrong with toilets, they tend to think about the water waste. And that is a really big problem. The fact is that whole system is designed to use water. We can save water in our toilets. There are new designs that save water. But if you save too much water, then the sewers don't work. You need water flowing through the sewers to move the poop and the pee through them, and also the other trash that ends up in them to the wastewater treatment plant. And so we can conserve water, but unless we've really changed the systems, we can't do away with it um, and do away with that wasted water. Uh, regarding energy, the treatment plants use aerobic digestion, which is the, there's microbes that digest the organic waste in, in the wastewater. And you have to feed them basically with oxygen. And so those are constantly pumping air through the sewage. So that's why in the wastewater treatment plant, you kind of see this roiling <laughs> sewage water. That's the air getting pumped through. And that actually uses a lot of energy. There's an estimate, at least in the U.S. and maybe around the world, that the energy bill of water and wastewater is 40% of the energy bill of whole municipalities. One of the
0: many subjects discussed in Pipe Dreams is something called fatbergs. Can you tell us how they form and how you deal with them?
1: I see fatbergs as a good example of how these old infrastructure isn't coping well with the modern world. So fatbergs form when you have like this sort of perfect storm in the sewers of a mixture of Trashed. These wet wipes are really a big culprit. So, when people use wet wipes to clean themselves and then flush them, I don't know if that's something that you're seeing in Hong Kong or in Asia, but it's a really growing problem in Europe and the US. And I think in other places, the wet wipe industry is growing really quickly. And the pandemic has made this worse because people didn't have toilet paper and they also just were wiping things down and then they were flushing them. You should not flush those. It should only be toilet paper, pee, and poo. That's it. Anything else that goes down there is a problem. And then the oils, fats, oils, and grease. And these come down sink drains and also in restaurants. And restaurants aren't supposed to put these down, but they do. And there's more and more of these because of increasing fatty, oily diets, modern diets. And so when you have these together, they kind of congeal and they grow and they form a hard mass. I mean, they go through these chemical transformations, and they become so hard that when it comes time to clear them out, you have to use like high pressure hoses, pickaxes, (laughs) like you just have to hack them out, you know, and it's really dangerous for the sewer workers. So I mean, keep them in mind as well. It's not like it's just about the sewers. If these things get too big, they can block the sewer altogether, then back them up and they can come back up into base. It can, you know, back up into basements. It can bubble out into the street, and that's of course really dangerous. You know, it's it's pathogens in the environment. This is costing cities around the world so much money. So the best thing to do is not to create these fatbergs to begin with. There is, though, the potential to recover some of the energy. Ideally, these fat oil, and grease they're known as fogs, would be recovered at restaurants, and then the energy would be extracted from that. That's easier because it's cleaner. Once it gets into the sewer system, it gets dirty. And then the process that it has to go to to be cleaned up and to be turned into a fuel uh, is more difficult. In the section about fatbergs, you talked about something that
0: was happening in China where criminals were using gutter oil skimmed from sewers to sell in the black market. And this would end up at restaurants being used for cooking.
1: Have you heard of this happening elsewhere? To be honest, it's pretty terrifying, the idea that, that these, that these uh, restaurants would be throwing oils out into the gutter and then criminals would be coming, skimming them up and then selling them back to restaurants or or, or using them for cooking food on the street. It's horrifying. And and I just can't imagine what the costs are for for public health. I, I don't know how widespread it is. And I have not heard of cases outside of China. But I guess it's possible that it's happening elsewhere as well.
0: You introduced this idea of Lutopia. (laughs) But <laughs> uh, what does that actually mean? And what would that look like for people
1: in different parts of the world and in urban and rural areas? I want people to imagine a world in which our toilets allow us to live in more balance with nature and with each other. The fact is we're connected to each other and to the planet um, in a very intimate way through our poop and pee. And our toilets can help make that relationship a healthier one. A Lutopia, for me, is a place where we don't infect each other with our pathogens, <laughs> where everyone has dignity of being able to use a safe toilet, and um, where we don't pollute the planet with the pathogens and the nutrients in our waste, but that we reuse them and so that we aren't extracting resources that we actually don't need because we have them right there.
0: I thought the Erdos project in Inner Mongolia was interesting because waterless toilets that diverted urine for recycling were introduced during a drought. But then after the drought in 2009, everyone
1: wanted flush toilets. So what happened? This was an example of how projects to develop new innovative types of toilets really need to work closely with users to make sure that they're providing something that the users want. This is a a coal mining area that had a quickly increasing standard of living. This new development became part of a project to pilot test new Dry toilets instead of flush toilets. These toilets, from what I understand, they separated urine from feces. You would poop and you would um, turn a lever and it would drop down and then it would close back up again. One of the main things that went wrong with the project is that the people who were using these new toilets didn't quite understand that they were getting something experimental they felt very awkward about using these new toilets. They were embarrassed by them. They didn't want to explain to their guests how to use the toilet. Can you imagine your guest comes over to your house, you offer them some food, they say, can I use the toilet? And then you have to go in and give them an instruction about how to use it. You know, it's not ideal. In the end, they rejected these toilets and um, they ended up having flush toilets installed. And that really is because for them, The flush toilet is a symbol of their new standard of living.
0: We're listening to Chelsea Wall, author of Pipe Dreams, the urgent global quest to transform the toilet. I asked her about the situation in rural areas of India, where she writes some people had been given toilets, but they still preferred to go in fields and to use those toilets for storage.
1: This is a classic kind of example that people in sanitation talk about which is that in India, it's traditional to defecate outside in a, a designated spot. And changing that behavior has been really challenging. They seem to have made quite a lot of progress recently with the Clean India mission and in, in overall changing this behavior. Efforts in the, uh, probably would have been the 1980s or 90s, where people were given toilets NGOs went and built toilets on people's properties. Um, They would go back later and find that people were still following these traditional practices, which have to do with religion. And the latrine outhouses that they had would be used as animal sheds. You know, one reason is that animal sheds are actually pretty valuable if you raise animals. Um, So maybe people just thought that that was a better use of that building that they were given. Another thing that a lot of people say is that those latrines were really stinky. <laughs> and so um, you can imagine that if you're used to fresh air, you know, going into a stinky latrine isn't very appealing. What this, what this comes down to is sort of the difficulty of changing people's uh, behaviors when it comes to their toileting activities in order to have a healthier environment for everyone. And also sort of being respectful of people's traditions and realities. Moving forward
0: to uh, the 21st century, you touch on Bill and Melinda Gates's support of the tiger toilet, which is a toilet in which tiger worms do the heavy lifting. And this is a off-grid toilet. I mean, in reality, in which areas, which countries would something like a tiger toilet work and be accepted?
1: Yeah, so this is like... um like a really good, I think, modification of a pit latrine. So what I've seen is that it's, you know, in some cases like a barrel to which the waste flows. And then in there are worms that break it down, that that accelerate the composting process, basically. The worms can break down the contents of the on-site toilet very well and prevent it from filling up. This is a problem in a lot of places is that you build pit latrines and then they fill up. One expert, Liz Tilley, calls this, you know, in Malawi where she's worked, the the sludge bomb. <laughs> you know, it's like this ticking time bomb waiting to explode. It's just all these latrines filled almost to their limit. Uh, emptying latrines in many places around the world isn't a well regulated activity. People just have to find somebody or some company that will come empty it. And then hopefully that person or company will take it to what's called a fecal sludge treatment plant. But there's often not one. And so they might just empty the latrine and bury it on site, like next to the house, or they'll take it to a waterway and just discharge it. I mean, that's not uncommon. And so what the tiger worms can do is accelerate the breakdown of the waste in the latrine so that this doesn't happen. And then on top of that, this tiger worm technology is also being used to develop fecal sludge treatment plants. And so then you empty the, a, a pit latrine, take it to a treatment plant, and then the tiger worms do their work there. And then they also create a compost as a, as a result of their munching on the waste. <laughs> so we're not really talking
0: about tiger toilets being introduced into urban areas, are we?
1: There is a company that is, is selling them pretty widely in India.
0: So there's a version that could work in urban areas, you saying?
1: Well, the fact is that urban areas are full of pit latrines. To the extent that this is better than a pit latrine and can be installed in, in an urban informal settlements or in an area that already has a pit latrine, um, it might very well be better than that pit latrine. So in a lot of cities in the world, pit latrines are extremely common in cities, especially in in poor areas of cities. Um, in a lot of cities that aren't sewered, also septic tanks are common. So I was in Indonesia. Indonesia um, is barely sewered at all. And people there use a variety of different kinds of latrines. Traditionally, the people who live near water tend to use those rivers or other water bodies as a as a way of disposing of you their waste. Are talking about the
0: helicopter toilets?
1: Helicopter toilets that um, that are situated over water, and then the water just carries it away. And there's a traditional belief that that's healthy and fine, and even feeds fish. Which I have to say, I mean, I like that thinking, <laughs> although we know from science that you know the the risks are very high. A sealed septic tank, of course, is better, but the problem is they can fill up and then if there's not really a good way for them to be empty, then you have unsafely managed sanitation. So there's a lot of work being done by experts on models for creating what's called desledging services. So making sure that all those pit latrines in a city are properly serviced by like suckers, (laughs) by like septic trucks, but for pit latrines, that take the fecal sludge out and take it to a fecal sludge treatment plant. Very much like how a septic system would be used. But the problem is that it's expensive. If you have a septic system, having your septic tank emptied is costly. And that's also true for a pit latrine. And of course, a lot of people who have pit latrines don't have a lot of money. So um, how can you make it affordable for them and make the service something that happens regularly, so that everybody's health is protected. It shouldn't be a question of whether someone has the money to properly empty their pit latrine, because whether they have the money or they don't have the money, their neighbours are affected by that choice.
0: Just going back to what you um, just said about waste as resource, and you quote Buckminster Fuller saying, pollution is nothing but the resources we are not harvesting. What can be Made from our waste, or what can our waste be used for?
1: Yeah, this has this has really been exploding. I mean, I even while I've been researching the book, I've been amazed by some of the things that people have come up with. The classic things are energy, so you can make biogas out of it in an anaerobic digester, and that biogas has a lot of different potential uses. Fertilizer it has a lot of nutrients in it because it's, it's basically the residue of the food that we eat and we eat the food for, you know, for the nutrients and then some of it comes out. Were there bricks, Sorry. something like that? <laughs> yeah, there's products. So, um, I guess I was thinking about the water as the other, as the other resource that can come out of our toilet as a sort of a classic example of the resource that come out of our toilets. But the other things that people are coming up with are things like bricks. So, um, you can take, the feces and mix them with stuff and turn it into bricks for building. You can turn it into kind of different kinds of energy. So like a charcoal kind of energy or a powdery kind of energy. And those can feed into industries like cement and and brick making. So the heat you need for those, which is a huge demand, it can replace wood, you know, and help with deforestation. One thing that I really love is this idea that you can, feed the waste to larvae of this insect called the black soldier fly, which is like a really special kind of fly that's perfect for sanitation because it's not a risk to human health because it doesn't eat when it's in the fly stage. So it doesn't go back and forth between feces and then land on your food or on you, putting you at risk. And then those larvae can be fed to livestock or to fish. And that's a source of protein in animal feed. I've recently learned that urine, the nitrogen in urine, can be turned into a disinfectant. And then also there's talk about using components of waste for things like making bioplastics. Let's go
0: back to the Romans. Now, they're the ones who are known for building these large networks of underground sewers. But not everyone wanted their private toilets connected to the sewerage system, right?
1: This was one thing that really surprised me. I mean, when I think of sewers... I think of toilets. But that hasn't always been the case. So ancient sewers are just these fantastic feats of engineering, the Roman sewers, huge, vaulted, cathedral-like spaces, um, in some cases. But they built those sewers not to carry away toilet waste, but because they needed to carry away all of the water in the city. So it's like they were, it was drainage for them. They were basically storm sewers. And in some cases, toilets got attached, especially toilets, like public toilet, public latrines, toilets and bathhouses where you would have, you'd have to, they'd have to empty the baths every now and again. So those would empty into the sewers and there would be latrines situated there. So then when the bath got emptied, it would wash the toilet waste away with that bath water but they didn't have these traps that we were talking about that had water seal on them and prevented gases from wafting up they were just holes into the sewer and there could be all kinds of stuff down there like insects and snakes and those things could come up and bite you in the butt you know so it was it wasn't really that appealing to sit over a sewer at least the archaeologists that I talked to say if you can imagine it you know if you really imagine what it was like to use these latrines it wasn't necessarily that pleasant maybe you would want to do it quite quickly (laughs) And then you would also, you would also have the smells. The archaeologists who have looked into this, and it's not that many, but they, they have found that, um, households, you know, would have more like pit latrines that would collect their waste in a hole rather than be connected to a sewer.
0: We're listening to science writer Chelsea Wall, whose book Pipe Dreams goes from ancient Rome to the future. Here she talks about wastewater-based epidemiology and tells us how sewage monitoring and not just for the coronavirus could become a permanent thing.
1: People do shed coronavirus in their stool in this way that they did also shed SARS. And um, that has turned out to be actually kind of useful because scientists have realized that they can test sewage to find out the trends of coronavirus infections in their cities. Wastewater surveillance, wastewater epidemiology, it goes by a few names, was a field before um, that was sort of slowly growing, particularly in Europe. Um, It was used to monitor for polio cases over the past decades, but it's really accelerated in the past year. And a lot of cities around the world have projects to do this. And they're also thinking about the future. So this is something that could be a kind of more permanent change where cities have wastewater surveillance programs, not just for coronavirus, but for all kinds of viruses like the flu. So they, they know when it's, when the flu season is starting. You can check for drugs of abuse to see what trends are without violating people's privacy. But you can say, Oh, this is a drug that's entering our city. It's been used for the opioid crisis in the U S to try to monitor trends in a city. There's a lot of promise in that. And I think it's a pretty easy change. And I think we'll see a lot more of it. Something
0: else we'll be seeing more of, especially in Asia, are the all-singing, all-dancing toilets. Here, Chelsea Wald remembers celebrating World Toilet Day by taking her parents to look at a Cola New Me toilet, which opens when you approach it, glows, plays music, and warms your feet. The experience, she says, was a bit strange.
1: Even the salesperson in the US found this to be Really bizarre, and he really didn't want to talk about it. You know, he didn't really want to show us this toilet. And you know, when I asked him, he said, "Well, who buys these toilets?" And he said, "It's the Asian customers who come in who probably know them from Japan, where they're extremely widespread. Like seventy-five percent of people in Japan at least have, you know, these robot toilets. Culturally, very appropriate. But he saw us go in where white Americans, and he—I mean—I think he was just like, those people are never buying that toilet. You know." And so he sold my parents a, a, a pretty standard toilet seat. I even tried to get them to buy a, just a bidet seat. I mean, it was almost just an experiment. Could I get them to buy one? And there's like no way I could get them to buy one of those. They're just weird to Americans. They don't want them. And, and, you know, my mom saw the little bidet nozzle kind of come out of the back of the seat. and She was just like, I cannot have that in my home. It's too weird. All that said... Chelsea Wald
0: is on a quest, and I can't believe we've managed to get through this whole interview without any toilet humour.
1: I think we can make toilets cool. I think we can make this seem like a really cool thing to talk about. People should be proud of their toilets and proud to be associated with these infrastructure projects.
0: I have a feeling that the mood is changing. Only a couple of years ago, or maybe a few more we saw the um, poo emoji and i remember when i first saw it i thought how weird there's there's a little turd emoji that you're supposed to send people in text messages and it was funny
1: and now it's kind of boring when the poo emoji started it was a, it was like a turd with flies around it, and it wasn't very appealing but over time it evolved into a smiley poo and people loved it and wanted to send it around and they have plush versions of it that they hug, you know, and so maybe this is a metaphor for what we can do is transform our mental image of poo from this, you know, unappealing turd with flies flying around it into a smiley poo that everyone can get on board with.
0: That's Chelsea Wald, and she's been talking to me, Charmaine Chan, about her book, Pipe Dreams, which is everything you'll need to know about toilets and the quest to improve them. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post,
1: head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.